Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Before I start, I want to thank all of you for the great response that you've given for everything that's happened these first 200 episodes. This last week has been crazy. I don't know what you guys did, but you really tuned in in force and you launched the podcast into the top 50 of God knows 375,000 podcasts. And it's all because of you. And I'm so thankful and so grateful. We also had our um, one-day special event, I Killed JFK in Theaters, and you guys came out in force. And I really appreciate that as well. My God, you guys really took it to a new level. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate all your support for this show. Very happy to be here, very excited to be here because I'm interviewing a guy named Andrew Golder who is a game show producer and creator extraordinaire and I never really get to explore that area of the business as much as I want to and I'm sure it's going to be a really interesting show. He's a great guy. I've been trying to get him on for a long time. So as I sit here with Andrew Golder, as you know, I always think about what I'm going to say right when I sit down and I don't really understand or process actually what I am going to say on these cold opens. But when I think of Andrew and I've known him my whole career, I think of a guy who is an incredibly hard worker and who has great relationships and is a guy that was never afraid to do anything that he thought was beneath him to figure out a way to find the relationships to get him to the next level. And game shows are a unique area of the business. It's very, very difficult. It's very, very hard. The pressure is enormous. 
and you're dealing with a different genre, but a genre that can make enormous amount of money and has incredible success and can be produced streamlined very inexpensively compared to a normal scripted show. So when I think about Andrew, he was always a guy that was incredibly approachable, always nice, always generous to other people, and always helped people along throughout the process of his career. And he was always a person that was never afraid or intimidated by taking other people's ideas that they brought to him and helping that person launch their career to the next level and never felt intimidated by anything of that nature. When you went on Andrew's sets, they were always wonderful sets. People were kind, people were nice, and that's what he strived for all the time. That's what he still does in this business. And he's been so successful in so many shows, I'd like to think I attribute it to the fact of how he lives his life like that and how he puts things together and how the work ethic combined with the relationships and how he treats people, and especially something I believe in karmically is somebody who pays it forward and always gives of himself in that area. One of the most important things. And so when I think of a guy that I'm looking at who's won five Emmy Awards, when I look in the mirror and I say that I've only been nominated for one, it lets me know this is a guy who knows how to get things done, knows how to make things happen. And that combined with a guy who's always striving to create new platforms and new shows, not just write or executive produce, but a guy who wants to actually create the actual concept and get it out there to millions and millions of people. So my guess as I think about this intro to this podcast is that if you can figure out the combination of all those things and put them all together, nice person, relationships, being a guy who pays it forward to young people on every set, doesn't matter if they're a driver or if there's somebody who's getting the coffee. And then if you can strive to always create your own things, always try to work hard to get the newest idea, the newest spin on something and get out there and pitch them and sell them and produce them, I can guarantee you, you're gonna have a shot at the kind of career that Andrew Golder has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today. Andrew Golder wanted this guy on the show for so long. Stiffed me every time. No, I'm kidding. He did not stiff me. It's all my fault. 
and I think it's important that I should give him the proper introduction. We've culled the introduction down because clearly my introductions are longer than War and Peace, so you're going to be very happy about this introduction. It's lean, it's mean, and it's to the point. So here we go. Andrew J. Golder has created, produced, and written numerous game, reality, and comedy programs for television, among them the multiple Emmy-winning Win Ben Stein's Money that launched the TV career of Jimmy Kimmel. Currently, Mr. Golder is the executive producer, co-creator of the incredible magic series Penn & Teller Fool Us, which begins its fourth season this summer on The CW. Check it out, July 13th. Other credits include multiple seasons of the Fox reality cult hit Solitary, a TV version of the classic board game, The Game of Life for The Hub, Comedy Central's update of The Gong Show, NBC's Identity with Penn Gillette, and CBS's reboot of Star Search, which was hosted by Arsenio Hall. Andrew was also the co-founder of the USA Rock Paper Scissors League, which has been the subject of several television specials. He also executive produced for ESPN, Fox Sportsnet, and A&E. His beginnings in the game show space started years ago when he created a graphic adventure game for the Apple II computer, Secret Agent Mission One. But he actually started his career hanging out with O.J. Simpson, believe it or not. In the show first and ten, we'll talk a lot about that. Please welcome my friend, my guest. What an honor, Andrew Golder. Thank you, Barry. I uh, it is a pleasure to be here, especially because you know we talked about doing this for a while, and I guess I stiffed you. Um, <laughs> but uh, I then started listening to the podcast. Why would you listen? <laughs> uh, well, you know, look, I, I, it's been the guest, the range of the guests you've had truly is, you know, wide and broad. And for someone, I'm fascinated about your audience, actually. You know, because for me, I'm listening to. Some people who I know, some of my friends have done the podcast, and so it's fun to hear them be interviewed and sort of listen to them tell stories. And I've learned stuff about some of these people that I didn't know, which was cool, like Shep Gordon, Lance Burton, who I've met, and your life and my life intersect in the magic world, and that's interesting. And then, you know, honestly, from even from somebody in the industry, you know, who who had, does this as a career, to listen to... Some of these guys, like Ted Sarandos, uh, who you know, um, as a as someone who has to sell to those guys, it's kind of interesting to listen and find out both personal and professional nuggets about those guys that one can use. So it's actually sort of a research tool for me too, actually, in a little bit of a way. That's one of my favorite things. If I hear something from audience members or even people in the industry, one of my favorite comments is. I had a meeting to work at X company and on the way there, I listened to the <laughs> podcast of this person because I was interviewing with that person. It's really, really fascinating that they use that as a tool and then they refer to it in their interview. It got to be a totally unexpected thing too for you because you did it, I, you know, as a, as a, I'm assuming, we haven't talked about this, but I'm assuming you kind of did this as a way of giving back and not so much as an insider's insider's thing, because that's how, you know, someone like me would listen to it and then use something that I heard uh, and learned about somebody on the podcast. But, you know, you, 
as I know you do as a fan of the podcast, you close with advice for people who are trying to break into, into the industry and all that. And it's certainly they're listening to it in a way different way than someone like use you would use the information in a way different way. So I think it's really cool that it's and that's part of the reason it's grown is it's got a kind of a wide reach. I don't know if you intended it to be that or not. I actually lost a bet, Andrew, and that's that how. True? No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Look, when you sit in meetings with people like yourself or Ted Sarandos or David Copperfield, and you get in your car and you driving off, you're like, I can't believe that I, I, I got to be with that guy for an hour and a half, and no one else could hear these tidbits, these pieces of information, this world life advice that. I mean, it certainly changed me. So I thought maybe there's an audience for that because I didn't see it out there. And, you know, obviously there's 375,000 podcasts. And to be able to break through and to have people listen. And, you know, sometimes you don't even know why or what's happening. I had a podcast this past week because of the JFK documentary, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to do a podcast based on the interview that I did with Judith Very Baker, who was Oswald's girlfriend in 63 before the Kennedy assassination. And I wasn't even sure that I should put it up because it wasn't the format that I normally do. And then I put it on and her numbers were very close to Kevin Hart's numbers. Wow. And the podcast jumped way up into the top 40. And you have no understanding of why things are the way they are. I love doing these things. Maybe I love doing them so much because it's just a labor of love and you're able to sit across from somebody. When I sit across from you, I know this sounds corny and you're going to make some crazy joke about it, but... It's something I say when I get to be across from a wonderful, extraordinary woman that you get to meet. And I always say you feel like time stops and there's no bills and there's nothing and you get to be with that person. And it's like a love affair. And I feel that way when I'm with my guests. It's like I'm on this amazing date where I can get inside and they can get inside me and we can share and we can really move mountains and that's what I love about these things that are so great it's like that kind of connection that no one can take away from you yeah, we're deep into arcane theory here but it's interesting when you say that it's a it's a fascinating thing about podcasts in this day and age of the ma massive distractions that we all deal with and even you know as a TV producer dealing with the fact that people are you know watching your show and you know they're watching your show and 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 looking at their phone and have their computer open and you're even being asked to program that way and come up with multiple streams and internet you know adjuncts to your shows and stuff like that as a producer but when just in talking about the podcast it really is that that moment of time stopping to be able to sit here and just focus with someone and cut all that stuff off and be in the moment in the real sense of life, you know, be in the moment, that is, and it's sort of like very old school, the art of real conversation, you know, taking us back to radio before any of us were alive. But I mean, it, it really, it's interesting and so rare in this day and age. Well, hearing you say that, it, it's very logical that that's a real rush for you 
to do these um, because you rarely get that. Ch- I mean, look, you and I have known each other for 25 years and we've never sat down and had a conversation <laughs> this focused this long. And we never will again. That's probably true. <laughs> hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I just want to go on a little diatribe here is the fact that I love stories. Podcasts are about stories, and I'm a big believer in that entertainment rallies around great stories. And films, movies, radio, podcast. It's all about the story, a great story. And you're going on a blind date as a guy and you don't have a great story. You're going to have a pretty ungreat night. Yet, one of the things that fascinates me about your specified profession in the game show world, it's always fascinated me because people understand how successful and how much money is made from game shows like Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy and things like that. Yet it's the only part of the entertainment business that I know of that is devoid of any story at all, yet it's the most successful. Could you explain to me why that is? And are you satisfied working in a field where there's no great stories? Well, it's a, it's, it's a three, there's a three-part answer to that. I mean, the first, first part is there's two parts to, you know, if you, in game, the, the, the phrase game show, um, you know, you're, the stories that you're talking about generally come from shows, script shows that have scripts. I think the part of the story of traditional game shows is the game part and you and I think people watch those and part of the success and part of the the obsession with them and is that it's a game and just like a sporting I think people watch it like a sporting event and it there's the winning and losing and the drama of somebody winning a million dollars or even you know in the old days a new TV set or whatever the heck it was you know they're there's that inherent drama that is uh, built into a game, you know, and there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And there's always, you know, there is that arc over a 22 minute game show or an hour game show, whatever, you know, that at the end, someone's going to win 
or someone's going to lose or someone's going to get eliminated, you know, so that you're there is. Um, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but I do think there is an inherent sort of arc, dramatic arc built into even the simplest of games. And then we've seen certainly over our lifetime, you know, when in the early 2000s, when, you know, game and reality shows went back into prime time and went to this other level, you've increasingly seen story being baked into dramatic formats. Things like Deal or No Deal started out as a simple game format. And I always joke the first time I saw it, you know, you watch a new show and you talk with your friends. And, you know, after the first episode of Deal with no, Deal or No Deal, people ask me, you know, what'd you think? And I thought, you know, I, I can only imagine myself going to Les Moonves and pitching Deal or No Deal. This is what I said at the time. People asked me this and I, I said, you know, and, and it's sort of, I go in, imagine myself pitching the Deal or No Deal as it premiered to Les. And then like a cartoon, the security guards picking me up and throwing me out onto the street uh, in front of Television City and Les screaming out after after me, you pitched me pick a number? You know, which is essentially what Deal or No Deal was. But to bring back to your point about story, you know, what, what Deal or No Deal began to evolve into was telling the story of the people. Here's this guy, he's an ex, you know, Iraqi vet. And we're going to bring in and re have a reunion between him and his family. So there's been this increased over the, you know, over the last, again, 15 years as games have come back to primetime. And I guess even going back into the quiz show days, that was the whole thing. They kept feeding Howard Stemple the answers on the, the $64,000 question because he was a character and they created a character. And so there's that level that game shows, I think, can work on as well, where you really are telling stories and all the reality shows, the survivors and big brothers and those kind of, they're not traditional game shows, but they're competition, you know, shows where there's a winner and they've got these interpersonal stories that have sort of the intersection of reality TV and game. And Deal or No Deal was sold to, I believe the executive at NBC at the time was Craig Plestis. It was on the bubble and as a no-risk situation, they decided to air it at the slowest time and the week that's traditionally the least amount of ratings ever. In terms of the list of people that they had to host the show, they had a list that they had. They went out to every single person, everybody passed as a host. And I believe Howie Mandel was somewhere number 11 through 19 or 20 on their list when they went to him. Turns out he was the perfect, perfect host yeah. for it. The rest is history. It was huge. Yeah. Have you ever pitched a show that was as simple as pick a number and you felt I'm going in here and I'm going to get thrown out and you ended up selling it? Ah. Uh. I pitched a show that was that simple. Um, probably uh, off the top of my head, I would say no, you know, and I think interestingly now, the thing that is maddening to me as a producer is that, and, 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 you know, sadly, I've sadly and happily, I've been in the industry long enough to watch it change. When I started doing game shows and TV back as an, as an EP in the mid nineties, 
game shows had completely gone off the air. You know, growing up, they were what one what was on all almost all that was on the air between nine and four eight four uh, in the afternoon, nine in the morning, four in the afternoon was all game shows. And then they sort of right around the end of the eighties, that well completely dried up. And then uh, started doing a show called Debt, and then when Ben Stein's Money and all that, and began sort of, I believe, I, I, I would state the, make the case that you could probably draw an indirect line between that and, and the be- beginnings of all of this whole reality thing taking off with Millionaire and, and all that. When, when I started doing game shows, the, the, the executives... It was before it was before the proliferation of all the reality and game program that we've ha- that we've seen over the last fifteen years, and that game show was this weird uh, uh, island where executives uh, almost across the board would just say, "We don't understand game at all. You just do whatever you want," which was this great creative for, freedom for me, beginning as a producer, and now. Um, as as there have been years of these kind of programs on the air, uh, you know, you you find that increasingly what people are asking for is, well, you know, can you make it more complicated? Um, can you? We need a twist. And I'm like, look at Jeopardy. Look at Wheel of Fortune. There's no twists on Wheel. No one's watching those shows, even as an audience now. You don't watch to go, oh, I wonder what new rules they're going to add when we come back from the commercial. They want. They want it to be, I think viewers want them to be simple. So I don't know, I, 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 in answer to your question, roundabout answer, I haven't uh, pitched something that I thought, oh, this is a real, this is like beautifully simple. I want to share with you something that I believe that you do that's beautifully simple. It's cleverly disguised as something more than it is. The show Fool Us, which I love. Fool Us, if you haven't seen it, you gotta see it. You can check out clips on the internet as well. It is the simplest of simple shows. And basically what it is, is it's disguised as a game show or not a game show. It's disguised as a competition show with absolutely no prize money which is great for the budget. (laughs) All they give them is a pen and teller game. And so what it is, is it's just a way to showcase young magicians. Again, they would pay money to do the show, these magicians. So it's almost like evening at the improv for magicians, except you get the host to come up and say, listen, your comedy there, I understood how you did that joke or I didn't understand (laughs) how you did that joke. And that's the thing, that's the hook, the one simple hook in the whole show. At the end of their performance, you're waiting for Penn to come up and say, listen, we understood how it's done, we didn't, but they never show you how it's done because even though in their magic act they do, they would never do that to another magician. And so you'll see clips online, even from, there was a teenager, Austin Janik just did a very simple trick, very close-up magic trick, and it was beautiful, and it was wonderful how he did it. But it's obvious that they knew how it was done. Any card trick, they're going to know how something's done, for the most part. Card tricks actually are the thing that fool them more than anything. Really? The box tricks are the hardest things, because those are all sort of mechanical in nature, and it's fairly there's there's very few paths you can go down to do 
some of those big box illusions like sawing a woman in half, stuff like that. Card stuff, because there's so much of it, uh, the guy that actually, if you if you looked over the course of the show, and they they'd admit this as well, the card stuff is the stuff that can fool them more than anything. Interesting. And you don't even understand if somebody won the show, if they didn't win the show, if everybody's revered and embraced. There's no one who goes on the show who completely bombs and fuck up a trick. It's just a showcase because if it was a competition, you'd have people go on like Bobby Flay and they'd fuck up a, a plate or something like that. But you don't have that. So there's no drama. You're never watching fool us to say, is this guy going to bomb? Is this guy going to screw up the trick? Is he going to be crying in the back? Let's see him in back really upset and sad that he didn't do well. <laughs> there's none of that. It's just simplest form for magicians doing their stuff, hosted from the side from a host who's a celebrity. And the one little different thing is the fact that, well, did you fool us or you didn't fool us? Well, it's an interesting thing that you, you talk about story. We started talking about story. And what separates fool us and I think what makes it successful is uh, that it's not just magician, 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 just a straight ahead variety show. There is this moment at the end of each performance where there is this story of suddenly the mystery. Will they or won't they? Will they figure it out or won't they figure it out? And that gives it enough of uh, a, a bump story-wise, you know, to go back to that, there is that other moment. It's not just, oh, somebody did a card trick. Oh, somebody's going to, you know, make something float. Oh, somebody's going to, you know, do something else. It, it gives it another, it takes it to another level. It gives it another uh, level for the audience to watch these tricks on uh, and, and follow along with the show that I think makes it uh, interesting. And it does come back to what you're saying about story. And it's also, ironically enough, a little bit like Win Ben Stein's Money in that it's can the everyman sort of topple the star. And I think people love it when Penn and Teller figure stuff out, but they really go crazy. You're all sort of, I think, naturally rooting for, and again, it goes back to the sports analogy, you're rooting for the magicians to fool Penn and Teller because they're the underdog. And so there's that built-in story too of whether it's this kid or this guy who's been doing magic his whole life or whatever it is, can they fool Penn and Teller? And again, we also, another thing that we build into the format is we do this, even though it's very small, we do these 45 second packages that do give you a little insight into whether this guy was a Vietnam vet or, uh, not Vietnam, but whatever the, again, you know, the, the, a war vet or uh, that he's been doing magic his whole life, he was inspired by his dad or whatever it is, those little nuggets that allow you as an audience to relate to, empathize, understand who these magicians are. But you're right, at its core, I do think the beauty of Fool Us is it's a super simple idea. But also, one of the things that makes certain shows really successful is good versus evil. <laughs> I mean, in American Idol for so many years, Simon Cowell was the guy who would destroy somebody and crush their dreams. There's not one time when I haven't watched every episode, but it's not one time where Penn just says, you know what, pal, he did a great job, but 
I've seen that trick a thousand times. You got to be more original than that. I don't want to see the linking rings, pal, okay? I've seen the rope trick, and that surprises me that no one's critical. And I think it's pretty hard, too, on the show, which is so fascinating about Penn and Teller. They've been in the business 40 years. For, for, for those in the audience that don't know, might not follow magic, or Penn and Teller are like an anomaly. They're like, they've been doing it for over 40 years. I went to see them in New York. They sold out this Broadway theater. It was huge. I mean, it was probably like 1,500 seats. They break all the rules. They show you the tricks. But then the last show I saw them do, Penn just sits on a stool. Going back to story, I think he told a story that was over 10 minutes long at the end of the show. And you're sitting there and you're wondering, like, what is going on? Is this the magic show? Is there going to be something? <laughs> but he can do whatever he wants and they can do whatever they want and their fans follow them. Same with when I interviewed Copperfield and I saw his show. Copperfield has a 30-minute piece within his new show that defies logic of how it is or why it is and people are there and they're going crazy and it's sold out every single night because people do what they want to do and with the television show what's really interesting is that these guys are closer to 70 than they are to 50 yet it's a hugely popular show they defy age nobody cares and they want to see them, they feel relevant, and there's a disadvantage to them as hosts that any producer will tell you is that one guy doesn't say anything. <laughs> so basically, Teller made the decision long ago that he's not going to talk, and imagine, if you will, if you were an entertainer, where you made a decision long ago which precluded you from ever doing a radio show, ever doing a television appearance on your own when your partner isn't around. You can't do a podcast. You can't do anything where you're hosting. You can't do voiceover. You can't do anything. And your partner is the voice of the whole thing, yet they've stayed together for 40 years. It's incredible. It's a weird, it's, it's you know, when you say it like that, it's very true. It's a very unique relationship and uh it's why teller not why but you know certainly teller has gone has done uh, increasingly over the last uh 10 years you know done a bunch of directing things he he and Penn have directed a couple movies and he's direct teller's doing uh a couple shakespearean projects he took the tempest and he did a directed a version of that with magic um that was very good i don't know if you saw that and he's doing another one um so he's taking the fact that he knows magic and then uh, in, injecting that into Shakespeare, which is one of his loves. You know, he started out as a Latin teacher, uh, Teller. Um, it is a very unique relationship, but it's part of what makes those guys incredibly watchable. And I think going back to to fool us and, and it being uh, we don't eviscerate the magicians. I mean, we did we have a, a, a in season one, there were a couple people who got it a little bit, just a little bit, but really at its core, it is, um, it's a show, as I say to all the acts on the show, I say, this is a show by magicians, for magicians. So it's really a very embracing that sort of fraternal brotherhood of magicians and not wanting to, you know, 
pull anybody's pants down and 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 belittle them or take their act apart. But I think what's interesting and part of the sort of subtle success of the show is that Penn has this reputation, less and less so with time, but he has a reputation as being a very controversial, uh, you know, they're the bad boys of magic, Penn and Teller and all that. And so there was this sense that there's this menace of Penn that allowed the premise of Fool Us a little bit to resonate because you think, oh my God, he's this big mean ogre. You know, he's six foot six, Penn, even though he lost, uh, you know, 100 plus pounds uh, over the last couple of years. That's with. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I think some of that meant that there's a perceived menace to Penn, which uh, gives it a little bit of that threat that these acts could actually... Uh, get taken down in a, in a, in a, in a mean way. But no, the, the, the spirit of Fool Us is, gen, is, is genuinely sort of loving and welcoming and, and to the community. And I think, you know, families that watch the show and everybody that watches the show embraces that spirit that we do the show in. Penn is an amazing talent, and I will say this and I will go on record. Penn is to magic what Howard Stern is to radio. And I'll tell you why I believe that way, because Howard and Penn have a very, very smart approach to entertainment and they understand how to do things and how to change their lane slightly to adjust to a different kind of media and a different kind of audience. And when Howard did America's Got Talent, people thought he was going to go on. They thought he was going to be a guy who was going to take down people, whatever. And he changed his lane slightly, became compassionate, teddy bear. And there wasn't even anybody that existed on the show after he got on it. It was all about him, yet he was just a fraction of his other self. And he showed a side of him and gained a whole new audience. And that's what Penn does on Fool Us. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And with Howard, it's the same thing. There was that what I call perceived menace. It was the same thing. You expect Stern to take acts apart. And he didn't. And that, that's a really good analogy. You know, you say the thing about what, what uh, uh, Penn is to magic, what, uh, what Howard Stern is to radio. I, I uh, doing some research for a, for a project. And I heard this great quote from the amazing Jonathan who said, uh, I, I am to magic what John Wayne Gacy is to clowning. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody. I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So... You can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site, 
And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go way, way, way back yes. to the very beginnings where you grew up, what town that was, what your family was like, what the socio-economic dynamic was, and what was your first inspiration to get into this crazy, fucked-up business? <laughs> well, I was, uh, uh, I was born... Uh, as a I was born in Oakland, but for the first, uh, in Northern California, for the first probably 20 plus years of my life, I thought I was born in Berkeley uh, because my mother had a house in Berkeley, uh, you know, her family house is in Berkeley, and I thought that that's where I was born. But no, I'm from Oaktown uh, way back before it was uh, sort of went through its hood time and now it's sort of gentrification. But born up there, moved around. Uh, four times, I think, before I was six years old, San Jose. and uh, Why did you move around so much? Uh, my dad was finding his way, you know. I mean, had some different jobs um, and was, you know, he was following where he was working. And uh, But by six, uh, we settled in Los Feliz and, um, you know, consider myself a native Angelino. Um, you know, interestingly, as a kid, uh, Watching, as uh, watching TV as as kids do and did back in the three channel universe or four channel universe, whatever it was when we were growing up, um, game shows were all that was on uh, in the morning and in the afternoon. Concentration, um, match game, the the old school match game. Uh, split second, I remember liking. Um, I mean, I watched them all. That was what there was, and they were. Entertaining and interestingly, I do remember there was a moment, and there weren't not a ton of these, but there literally was a moment when I was must have been you know 11 years old, and I thought I'm going to make money on a game show one day. Now, of course, I thought I was going to go on and be a contestant, um, which I did try to do in my starving college days and got turned down. I auditioned to be on a thing called Body Language, which was a charades game show. And I, and I probably also went with a buddy of mine to do an interview for one of the iterations of Dating Game and also got turned down for that. But, um, but it was funny. I really did have that moment where I thought I'll make money on a game show. And I, like I said, thought I'd be on as, as, be on an, as a contestant. And, uh, you know, I look back on that and I go, wow, that was weird. Like, I, I, I knew that <laughs> I, I could never have known that it would become my career. Um, but was, but you know, was fascinated by game, uh, not fascinated, I liked game shows growing up, uh, watching them on TV. And then, you know, the rest of my childhood was, you know, sort of a normal, lower, I mean, I probably just regular middle class, middle class kid, you know, my, my dad, my family had nothing to do with the industry. Uh, and uh, when I was in high, I thought I was going to be a lawyer growing up. That was my first, you know, because I did debate when I was in fourth grade or something like that. And uh, then increasingly through school, you know, you, you teachers 
began to give you the option of, do you want to write a report or do you want to uh, do, a, do a little movie or something? So I would always take the, uh, that option. The greatest, the greatest version of that was in senior AP, AP French. Um, I, it's my, one of my favorite school stories that I now tell my daughter, and I'm, I'm a little scared that I've imprinted her with this, but that uh, in AP French, our final project, which was like half of our grade, was to um, write some big essay on uh, uh, Waiting for Godot. Or the teacher said you, we could do a, a stand-up project in front of the, uh, a presentation in front of the class. And a buddy of mine and I, decided we'll do the presentation. And we had, it was this sort of genius moment for school, beating the system moment in school, because Waiting for Godot is this absurd play. So we decided we're going to stand in front of the class and we're going to recite phrases that have no connection from French one to each other. And we just, because it's an absurdist play. So we stood up there, I put a colander on my head, and I don't know what my buddy put on his head, and we said, Hello, and he said, le ciel est bleu. And I said, you know, uh, whatever, the, the, uh, we just sat there and went back and forth with phrases from French one that had no connection to anything. In the, and the teacher, afterwards, we finished, she says, that's brilliant. And we we're like, oh my God, we've beat the system. I've got to, I've got to do something with this. Um, and, and from there, I started my own theater group, you know, went to, uh, UCLA and I had a very sort of love-hate relationship with uh, with college and I don't know maybe you know with all the people you've talked to and it's interesting for your viewers whatever I don't I like to consider myself a reasonably smart fellow I another one of those moments I will never forget you do on this I know they they're, they relate to, to to Hollywood stories but this was truly a holy shit moment in my life going to school UCLA, day one of college, sitting in the front row of some theater history class, and the professor starts giving a lecture. And he's giving a lecture like you would make fun of professors, you know, if you were doing a parody of professors, like a boring teacher in high school, we would, you know, you make fun of a boring teacher and you drone on and on, kind of like Ben Stein and uh, Ferris Bueller. And um, I'm sitting there and I, almost an out-of-body experience. I'm watching this guy talk and I'm going, holy shit, this is college? This is just more school. This is the same thing I've been doing the first 12 years of my life. And I had somehow created in my head this notion that college was somehow different from the rest of school. Now, admittedly, I was still living at home, so I didn't have that pack up all my belongings, go to a different city and, and start my life. But it was like the weirdest moment. Um, and at the time when I was in college, I'd already taken my theater group from high school and we had rented a theater in Hollywood and we were doing a comedy show um, uh, that I wrote and directed and was in. And so I'm like, wait a minute, these people are trying to do it. And I'm already kind of doing it on some minuscule level. And so I, my relationship with college was I dropped in and out. I quit three times. Um, you know, I remember one day, uh, uh, it was the start of the fall semester. It's a beautiful, crisp LA day, um, and, and it, uh, I go into this movie class, movie history class, and I watch two movies. And it was interesting. They, that class trained me 
up to that point, I'd never, been, I'd never fallen asleep in a movie in my life. Maybe once when I was a kid and my parents took me to something that I was too young to see. But I started, you know, you watch like from nine in the morning till two in the afternoon. You might watch, you know, watch, I guess you watch two films or something like that at a time. And I started falling asleep during the movie sometimes. And I watched one of these old movies and I just, I walked out of the class and I went, holy crap, I can't, I got to quit. And I, I quit one semester. I never even told to this day. I mean, parents have now passed away. They never knew that I quit school for a whole semester or whole quarter and, uh, and, and, you know, never told them that I was quitting. Uh, but interestingly, to, to circle it all back, I, I can also, even though I never finished school, my last quarter at UCLA, I did an internship uh, with uh, a documentary uh, company uh, called Robert Gannett Productions. He won some Emmys back in the day, did Raid on Antebi, I think, and some of those things. And out of that internship, I can draw an indirect line to every job I ever got since. Relationships, Barry. Relationships. <laughs> I'm being heckled by my own devices. <laughs> no, it's true. It's very true. But you're not even in that lane. Why do you go for an internship at Gannett Productions? I mean, I was in that lane. I was a, I was a film and TV major. I just didn't want to... I wasn't being... I didn't. I couldn't make that part of the system work for me. I wanted to go do my own thing. I didn't want to, you know... Uh, Again, as I said from that story about the first day of school, I said, oh, man, this is just more school. I don't want to be in more school. I want to go do stuff. I want to create. So I quit school ultimately and started my own computer game company. And so and that was, you know, storytelling. So I was back in the beginning days of the Apple and uh, essentially created a, a graphic adventure, which is sort of like a, a storyboard that you can play, um, but you would type in what you wanted to do and it add pictures. And it was a thing called Secret Agent Mission One. Uh, there was no mission two. Um, and uh, uh, we had some success with that and then watched the bottom drop out of the, the computer industry. Uh, at that point, uh, you know, we couldn't, we were right on the verge of getting some big distributors and then uh, sort of the bottom fell out of that games market. But I was, you know, that was me telling stories and writing and doing all those things. Um, you know, weird story. My first job in TV was as a, um, out of that internship that I did when I was at UCLA, uh, uh, which was a free gig, I, uh, I got a job as an as the Spyro, remember the Spirograph? You remember the Spirograph, yes. right? I was the guy who was the Spirograph artist behind the scenes. And I wasn't an artist at all at the time. I mean, I was a stick figure guy. And I got hired for whatever it was, 150 bucks, or probably 100 in, in, in the day, to make Spirograph drawings. And then they would take them and put them in front of the kids for a commercial and they'd put it in front of the you know seven-year-old who would sit there make two lines and go look what i did ma and that was my first paid gig in the industry was doing a, a spirograph commercial uh, at behind the scenes um did they still make spirographs i don't know but i actually saw the commercial which was really weird you know now on youtube you can see anything and i saw the the commercial i've done over 200 of these podcasts and Never once have I uttered the word spirograph. There you go. Well, I've, my small my small piece of history. Um, and then I again out of that um, out of that 
internship. I, and again, had no, no way to get in the industry because uh, I didn't know anybody. My dad was in banking. My mom was a, a, a secretary at, at, uh, at a rock station here, which was very cool in terms of getting free tickets to concerts, and, but, uh, but no into the industry. And so I, I, um, I got a job as a, a PA on a, uh, one of the movies of the week that they were doing at, at Robert Gannett Productions, a thing called Children of the Night. Uh, which was, uh, you know, a, a docudrama about Lois, this woman, Lois Lee. You ever run across her? She rehabilitated uh, prostitutes in, you know, in Hollywood and, and got them off the streets. I feel like I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, uh, I did that. And that was a great, you know, uh, the great story from that was, uh, I forget, I think the, I forget the name of the of one of the producers. But you know, I was a kid, twenty, and working on this movie of the week, and it was the first one of the first sets I'd ever been on. I remember I remember a couple things from that. One one was uh, watching. It was the first time I'd ever seen a, a a movie get put together, and I remember think watching the process of shooting. You know, a page or five pages a day or whatever it was, out of order and all that. And you just think. How the hell do great movies ever get made? It's the most disjointed process. And it's amazing when a great movie happens that they can synthesize these out of order pieces into something amazing. I remember that was a weird light bulb that went on. And what Andrew is alluding to, for those of you who are not in this business that are listening, you would think when you watch a movie or a television series, you'd think, okay, all right, we're watching the first act here, the first scene, they shot that the first day, then the second thing they shot the second day. But for those of you out of the business, it's a crazy situation where if there's a scene, let's say, in the living room with the family, they shoot all the living room scenes throughout the whole movie. And if there's a scene that's out at the track, they shoot all the scenes at the track. That's the way they do it. So it's all out of order. And you really do wonder to yourself when you think about that for every movie, how does it feel like it's all together? But some movies you'll see and you'll see an actor in a movie and you'll say, wow, he seems different in that scene than he does in that scene. And that's when you realize that's what happened. It's incredibly difficult for them, I would think, as an actor to juggle that mentally. But, um, you know, from the story I was going to tell you was on that on that movie of the week, um, you know, I was probably at that time, as kids are, you know, uh, have a, a little bit of ego and, and whatnot. And and it wasn't even that I did it with ego because ultimately there's sort of a happy ending to it. The guy ended up saying what he said to me as the punchline of this story as a, as a compliment. But, you know, I would... When I wasn't doing something on the set, I would just like lie in the sun and, and get a tan or something. You know, I didn't know better. It was my first gig really on a, on a set. And when they had things for me to do, I would do them and, and, and did them with to the point where I was kind of ended up serving as the second second AD, which essentially was sort of a talent wrangler was my job. I would hang with the talent and so that when they needed them on set, I'd be there to, to get them on set. And Kathleen Quinlan was the, was the star of that show, of that movie. And uh, uh, I remember actually one night, again, as, as the fun stories as a kid, I, uh, 
she she was dating Al Pacino at the time, and Scarface had come around around that time. And I loved to do this. You know, buddies of mine and I, before it became cool with the hip hop crowd, we would we fell in love with Scarface, even though it wasn't a hit when it came out. And so we would do I would do imitations of Pacino, and I started doing my imitation of Pacino in Scarface for Quinlan, for Kathleen Quinlan, and. I remember this so, so bizarre. Again, as a kid, she brings over to hang out with her, and I'm on the set just hanging out with her to make sure she gets to the set when it's time, and she brings in Melanie Griffith. And I had no idea who Melanie Griffith was. It was before Melanie Griffith was a big star. She married Don Johnson, I guess, at the time, but it was, and she brings in Melanie to hang out with her, and she's like, Melanie, you got to hear this guy do Scarface. And so I start, I'm doing my Scarface imitation from Melanie Griffith, who is dating Stephen Bauer, who played... Manolo in Scarface. I just this is bizarre. This how this whole industry works. Um, and anyways, the 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 producer of the show uh, came up with this great quote. He says to me, you know, because I guess one time I he caught me sitting. I would not caught me. I was sitting in his chair. You know, on on sets they have chairs for the director and the some of the stars and whatnot. And they put their names on it. And I didn't know better. I sat in his chair. No, no one's sitting here, you know, and he just get out, you know, get out of here, get on my chair, kid. And then he looked at me one time and he said at the end of the production, he liked me. So sort of a compliment. He said to me, you know, Andrew, you do nothing better than anyone else I've ever met. <laughs> um, meaning I was just I was I was good. I, I, I hung out good on the set, but I, <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure what message that might send to any viewer. But I remember that was sort of like, it's like that's an interesting thing to say about me. Um, and then went from there to being a location manager in the circuitous Andrew Golder career. I, uh, I got a job as a location manager uh, on First and Ten, which was an HBO series uh, in the 80, late 80s about a, a football team run by a woman sort of based on the L.A. Rams at the time. Uh, Georgia Frontier. Exactly right. And, you know, being a big sports fan uh, myself, that was great great fun just to hang out on that set and ultimately also really sort of sowed some of the seeds for me learning a skill set as a producer because you know there I was still a kid at the time and I would get a budget of whatever it was I don't know half a million dollars or a quarter million dollars that we had for for locations and I would drive around LA you know knocking on people's doors it was great you know especially when you had a especially fun when you had to find like where uh, a, a rich character's, one of the rich football players' houses was. So I would drive around Brentwood and take a walk and knock on people's doors and say, hey, can I, you know, you interested in having a TV show shot here? And, uh, you know, take some pictures of their house and then come back and take the director on a tour. It was, really, it was a fun job. What was the going rate to rent a house for a day? I think it was probably, you know, depending upon a, a high-end house was, you know, maybe at the time, probably 3000 a day or something. Tell um, me the worst thing that ever happened in somebody's house as a location manager for you. Very simple story, Barry. I'm in the valley somewhere. Two, two stories, actually. And these happen within, within six months of each other. I go into one woman's house, she's a lovely lady, taking pictures of her house. She's got two Dobermans. I, uh, she's showing me around. I'm taking pictures of the backyard where she's got a pool. Um, she goes into the house and made a what we learned was a dog owner's mistake. You're supposed to let the dogs go in first and then walk in after them. 
because she goes into the house first and I go in after her and the Dobermans think I'm, you know, they think I'm attacking her. They're, they're trained to attack if you, you know, the, if someone follows their master. So I'm walking into the house, Doberman takes a bite out of my leg, uh, punctures the skin. You know, it, it, I didn't know it, it, it hurt. You know, I look down, uh, it's, oh, that hurt. And then I, I actually open up my pant leg and see, you know, blood coming out and uh, pass out for about 25 seconds at the sight of my own blood and a hole in my leg and uh, get taken to the hospital, get a couple stitches. And then, uh, but it was fine, you know. And then not six months later, we had another scene for another, I guess the second, another cycle of series. And I'm scouting where we had to do some shootout. We had to do a big scene where we would blow the crap out of a house and it was some football player taken hostage. I mean, we're in season four now. We're close to jumping the shark. And um, uh, I'm again out in the valley, just in the deep, deep, deep valley, scouting some scuzzy neighborhood. And I, oh, this house could be good for, you know, blowing up and sh a shootout. And I try and knock on the door and another huge dog. And I've just been bit like five months ago. <laughs> a huge dog just starts tearing out after me. And I am, you know, seeing another, another trip to the hospital getting bitten. And I, you know, put on my my best Jewish sprinter um, routine and I'm being chased down the street by like a 150 pound dog and at about halfway down the block I just wipe out and tumble all over myself you know tear up my pants I'm fine ultimately but it's so funny because the dog just stops and he could have kept going he just stops and he like looks at me and like yeah that's enough I got you. <laughs> this great mom, like he knew. All right, I, I, I've screwed you up enough. I don't need to go bite you. He learned what you learned at the time, which there are no Jewish sprinters. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, I think about uh, 15 years ago, there were 13 Jewish football players, and they all had one thing in common. Uh, they were all adopted. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to ask you about First and Ten and O.J. Simpson, and this fascinates me. When you're turning on your TV and you're watching the White Bronco chase, are you thinking to yourself, I saw this when I worked with him, or were you thinking like that interview with the next-door neighbor? I don't know what happened. He was a quiet young man, and he never did anything wrong. I don't know how he went into that building and shot up those people. It's crazy. Um, O.J. was such a kind guy to me. I'm an, I, I, although I went to UCLA, I grew up as an SC fan, still am to this day. My dad went to USC. And... So to hang out, to even say hi to O.J. Simpson was like, and that was at the time in the, before the insanity that went down, he was, you know, one of the greatest athletes, you know, iconic athletes of our time. And certainly uh, for an SC fan uh, back then before the Reggie Bush and before the 2000 Pete Carroll era SC stuff, O.J. was, he was the face of the school. And, and so, you know, to be able to even say hi to him, whatever was a cool deal. And I was, again, I was, I, when I, when I first met him, I was the assistant location manager on first and 10. And then I became the location manager, but he was always, it really is that next door, that next door guy, you never saw it coming. He was incredibly kind to me to the point where we became friendly and he would say, you can, you can use my trailer whenever you want, just go in there. And I was nobody on the set again. Like I wasn't a producer. I wasn't anything. And he's like, 
you know, if you want to go in there and hang out, have a, you know, soda or whatever, eat my food, whatever you can. He was so nice to me. And as you know, you know, working on a set, you get up at, I was location manager, heck, crazily, even though I'm not a morning guy, I'd have to be there at 4.30 in the morning. And the first guy there, last guy out as a location manager often. And, but even for the actors, you know, you'd have a six o'clock call. He was the star of the show. We'd have a six o'clock, six a.m. call and have to work till six at night and whatnot. And we'd get delays as there are on sets and whatnot. And I've seen certainly, as we have seen, stars get pissed off with production schedules. You know, when there's a delay or whatever. And OJ, never. I never saw the guy get mad at anybody. He was. And I saw guys. I saw actors and actresses on the set sometimes. You know, show attitude. And I never saw him have any attitude. Um, so it was uh, shocking to see, you know, uh, everything that went down and watching that Bronco thing and talking to other people who worked on the show and just like, oh my God, what the hell is happening here? Um, it was a big shock. And especially again, like, you know, they're, they're in, in, the, in the, another holy shit story is, you know, OJ, I became close enough to OJ at one point that he invited me to dinner one night with just him and Nicole at, at a restaurant that Al Cowlings, AC, who drove the Bronco, was managing. And someplace on Pico, an Italian restaurant on Pico that's now since gone out of business and, you know, been three restaurants since. But I remember like calling my dad, who again was an SC football fan, calling my dad. And like, this was this insane moment in my life. I'm like, dad, you're not going to believe this. I'm going out to dinner with O.J. Simpson, just me and him and his wife. And I was like, it was a cool thing for me, you know, at the time. And obviously to watch how, what the, the you know, the mess that that all turned into was shocking as hell. And when I, you saw them together that night, no evidence of anything in their relationship that was out of the ordinary. No, I mean, uh, you know, look, there were things that were clear about OJ and his lifestyle and, and uh, you know, it wasn't a perfect marriage, <laughs> let's put it that way, you know, but not in a violent sense. I never saw any of that, you know, at all. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, never, never in a million years could have seen that. But you said it was obvious how he lived his life, and what do you mean by that? OJ was a famous guy, and I think he enjoyed his fame. You're on the set for God knows how many years. You see different girls come to the set as opposed to just her. Something like that, yeah. I mean, yeah, look, OJ was a flirt. He was a flirt. He was a, he was a ladies' man, you know, I think. But, but that was certainly no... There was no foresight in that to where it where it went you know i mean he was just a guy who again he was a celebrity and he enjoyed his celebrity but there was no sort of foreshadowing that any of us saw that would lead us to think that you know or could, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, like when lawrence taylor was on the set for example you know um uh, a first and ten he did a guest star on it and like you could see like, or some of these guys, Alzado was on the show, Lyle Alzado, who was a crazy guy, you know, and those guys you saw and you're like, I remember being scared of LT. I mean, he showed up, he partied all night, showed up to do his thing. His eyes were, you know, 
bloodshot red and the little slits. And you could see that LT had a, you know, a, a side to him that you had to be a little bit scared of, you know, and Alzado was the same way. But like OJ was just, hey, man, what's happening? You know, he was so friendly. And again, for me, being nobody on that set, essentially, that, that he was he was out of his way kind to me. And what about Nicole? What was she like? Uh, she was lovely. I mean, there was one odd little moment where, you know, she was marginally flirtatious with me. And I thought, oh, that's weird. I, you know, I mean, OJ was my friend. I didn't want to, you know, just in conversations. I couldn't remember if you paid me what it was. But there was a moment where I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, you, <laughs> I mean, that's nice. Hey, thanks. And after um, you listened and you followed the court case, and you listened to everybody's side of the story and all the testimony that you were privy or had time to listen to, right before the judge announced the decision, what had your mind made up that happened? I, I think the, the evidence was, uh, let's say this, I assume that he did it, um, but I understand why there was reasonable doubt, I suppose. I think that, you know, look, as we all know how that case went down, it took so many crazy twists and turns that it's not surprising that he was acquitted. Um, and I think there was room for some doubt, you know, for sure. It, it, but at the end of the day, I suppose uh, I would say that he, he did. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilledjfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, I guarantee you it will blow you away. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Yep. And you tell me what comes to mind. Could be a word, could be a sentence, could be a little story, could be anything. Ben Stein. Ben's a genius. You know, he really is that guy. There's no put on to that character. He is a smart guy. There's a great length and breadth to his knowledge. Um, and he's also, you know, this unique, unique character that somehow this, you know, super nerd um, uh, turned into a, you know, had that weird happenstance where he became a movie star. Uh, and I think people know that story. I don't know if they do or they don't, you know, where he got hired to in Ferris Bueller just because he looked kind of funny and looked like a, a boring professor, but he wasn't, he wasn't even supposed to talk in that movie. And then they said, just, we're going to shoot some reaction shots of people. You just go, you know, pretend you're teaching a class. And it was so funny in a droll way that, you know, Bueller, Bueller, his weird way of, of, uh, unique way of speaking that it, that it, 
gave him a speaking part and launched this whole other career. And that wasn't ever what he intended to do. And the, the Win Ben Stein's money thing, I think the funny Win Ben Stein's money story was that, you know, we got pitched. I had an overall deal at, at uh, ABC Buena Vista at the time. And I had done this show called Debt, which was the first show that I had uh, EP'd and, uh, you know, got some notoriety with. And um, so we started to get other game show pitches. And a guy named Al Burton uh, uh, came into the office and he pitched some shows and they we didn't bite on those. And then as he was leaving, he said, um, you know, I, I've got this idea for a show that's kind of like that, um, uh, sort of a funny quiz show. I'm not sure whether it should be win Ben Stein's money or win David Lee Roth's money. And um, we, you know, just like oh, the, the win Ben Stein's money thing is an interesting idea. And I um, and I met with Ben and I had a really, sadly, it hasn't happened again quite like this. I had lunch with Ben and I'd never met him before, had lunch with him. And as I'm going down the elevator after lunch, I saw the entire, not the entire show, but I saw all these elements of the show in that 15 second, 20 second elevator ride. I said, okay, there's gonna be isolation boosts at the end. Ben's is gonna be elegant. The other isolation boots gonna be a piece of crap. We're not gonna have cheesy game show music. We're gonna use classical music. I mean, all those elements that were part of the show came to me in that, 15 second elevator ride uh, after lunch with Ben that, that all became, you know, part of that format. Incredible. And Ben, before he did Ben Stein's money, he was famous for? Well, his dad was, and crazy stories, you know, his, first of all, Ben, the great, great pictures of Ben were when he was in, started out in college in the late 60s. There are these great pictures of Ben with an afro about seven inches high, uh, or Jufro, about seven inches high. And he was a fundraiser at the time for the Black Panthers, which couldn't be more opposite of where his politics, you know, became. Because his dad at the time was Nixon's, uh, uh, the, 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 the Alan Greenspan of his day was Ben's dad, who was the chief econ economist for the U.S. Uh, under Nixon. And then... Uh, he brought him into the Nixon White House, and in the last days, as Nixon was on his way out, Ben was there as a speechwriter for Nixon, and he was a writer for Nixon. And then he started writing entertainment reviews for the Wall Street Journal. And he wrote a good review, a glowing review of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Norman Lear. Yeah, Norman Lear, and this odd sense of, this very quirky sense of humor that half the people got and half the people didn't understand at all. It was a parody of a soap opera. And the story is that Norm, Norman read Ben's review, glowing review in the Wall Street Journal and said, I want to hire this guy as a writer. And he brought him out to write on Fernwood Tonight. And then Ben was a writer. And the weird thing for me personally with Ben was Ben, there used to be two papers in Los Angeles, the, the LA Times and the Herald Examiner. And my dad used to bring home the Herald Examiner. We got the LA Times to the house. He brought home the Herald Examiner because we loved the sports section. And they serialized um, uh, a book about partying and cocaine uh, and, and Hollywood in the 
Herald Examiner paper. And I remember being fascinated by this as a kid sort of trying to break into Hollywood and it was drugs and money and guys paying, you know, giving girls money to go out with them and whatnot. And I loved that thing. It was by this guy named Ben Stein. And it turned out to be that that was a book that Ben had written. I think it was called Ludes, I guess, that they had serialized in the paper. And I couldn't believe when I met him that that was the same guy, because Ben Stein's not that uncommon a name. I thought, is that, did you write that thing? Um, but I guess that was a semi-autobiographical thing that Ben wrote about his sort of wild time in Hollywood in the 80s, which is also so antithetical to who you see this button-down suit guy being. Well, what's amazing is that you went out and you sold a show with a guy who never really been on camera and no one knew how did you do that? How is that possible? Did the network say, listen, we love the show, but get rid of this Ben Stein guy. We want to put this guy in. It, the, the, the Ben Stein story selling that show doesn't real on paper doesn't make any sense that you could go to Comedy Central, who didn't want to be in the game show business at all, still doesn't, you know, but didn't want to be in the game show business and had game show questions that were harder than Jeopardy because they had to be because we knew that we had this one guy who was that damn smart. So we had, it really on paper didn't make any sense. And the reason we sold it was because, uh, the reason we were able to sell that show was because we did a presentation. If we had tried to sell that in the room or on paper, it never would have worked. But because it was at Buena Vista ABC and they had the money to spend, I don't know, $100,000 to put up a little theater production. We, we put it on a little theater in Hollywood, I think, where, what's that place on La Brea that's upstairs of the Italian restaurant? Uh, anyways, we did, we, we, we put on uh, a little theater production of, of Win Ben Stein's Money and invited some buyers. And that's how we sold that show. We never could have sold that show just in a pitch. We proved to them it was funny in the room. And that was where, you know, that was the beginning of Jimmy Kimmel. John McEnroe. Uh, John John was the host of, uh, ended up becoming the host of a game show I did called The Chair for ABC. And that was the, the I refer to the whole project of The Chair as the Vanity Fair article I would have written if I never wanted to work in Hollywood again. Because so much crazy shit happened with that show. Um, I was hired on that show to do that show on the 23rd of December. So two days before Christmas, the whole town's on vacation. Um, and the, the, the preamble to that is, you know, some things you say are a, uh, an accident waiting to happen. For me, the accident actually happened on the way to the show. I'm going to do an interview with, with a meeting at William Morris uh, about the show. It had just been bought by ABC in a bidding war with Fox. I'm driving to the interview, it's rush hour. I'm going from the west side of LA to the east side. I'm in Beverly Hills. I'm trying to make a left-hand turn in rush hour traffic to get to the old William Morris. I'm going down Peck at five o'clock. I'm trying to make a left across three lanes of traffic. Two lanes of traffic stop and I'm cutting across the third and it's now the bus lane that's opened up or the park, parking lane that's opened up from three to seven where you can't park and I'm going, you know, two miles an hour, nosing out into traffic to go to this meeting. And I stick my nose into that third lane and a motorcycle at absolutely full speed runs into the front of my hood. The guy goes flying over my car. I think I've killed a guy. This is one of the scariest things that's ever happened to me. 
And the guy luckily was wearing all his full pads, stands up as if nothing happened. He was fine. His bike was screwed. I had to get the whole front end of my car redone. Drive back. I could still drive. I drove over to William Morris, had the meeting, got the job. And I get the call. He says, all right, it's 23rd of December. Um, Fox is doing another show. Uh, they, it was a bidding war between ABC and Fox for this concept. It was a two-minute sizzle. There was no show. There was no format. Uh, and we had to be on the air at the time. We were going to go shoot in Australia in five weeks. We don't have a host. We don't have a format. There's a two-minute sizzle. It's millionaire with a heart monitor. That was what the, the pitch. And they did a lovely sizzle with the heartbeat, dun, 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 and some questions and the heartbeat racing. And that got Fox and ABC into a bidding war over this concept. ABC buys the show. Fox does a thing called, we're doing a show called The Chair. They do a thing called The Chamber. And it becomes this absolute war between the two networks. So we have initially five weeks to do it. Then Fox keeps pushes their date for The Chair and they're going to be on the air. And they Fox pushes their date for The Chamber. For The Chamber, right. They say they're going to be on the air in the, in the 15th of January. And I get a call from ABC and I'm like, I'm literally calling people up already. Forget about before this happens. I'm calling people up on their vacations on the 24th of December. I'm like an art director on the ski slopes. I say, yeah, you got to come home. We're doing a show. We've got to build a set or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pulling people off their vacation. We are working around the clock. Literally, I walked out one time in my office. I had a meeting with the execs at ABC. We start the meeting at 11 at night. I get out of my office at, walk out of my office at 2, 2 a.m. and it is bustling like it's election night at the New York Times. There are five new people have started work in the middle of the night since I was in this meeting. I'm like, it was insanity. I get a call from ABC. They say, look, can you be on the air January 13th? Now, again, December 23rd, no format, no host, no nothing, no set, no nothing, no contestants, nothing. Can you be on the air January 13th? I said, look, I'm not going to tell you I can't do a television show in two and a half weeks. I can't promise you it's going to be a good television show. They said, we don't care. You have to be first. <laughs> so it became this crazy game of chicken between the two networks that we're stuck in the middle of. Uh, and we hire John McEnroe. How many people did you go out to the past before you got John McEnroe? McEnroe was the first person we went out to. Um, so we, we hire McEnroe. Who does the other show hire in the chamber for their host? Rick Schwartz, sports guy from Fox. I mean, it was it was nuts. The crazy thing was, it's sort of an off. It's a I can go back to a McEnroe story, but the story between this the war, the chair chamber war, was fascinating. Uh, we're we're doing the the we're producing the chair on one lot in Hollywood, and at the same time, I'm also doing a a season of Win Ben Stein's Money on a second lot that's like a half mile away. The lot where I'm doing Win Ben Stein's Money is the same lot where they're doing the chamber. So I know all those people. And I, I know a bunch of the people on the show and I'm talking to the director and our, we had the same AD and we're, we're, we're watching this insanity happen between the networks. In fact, part of the deal 
with the, the, the woman who came up with the idea for the chamber, when ABC bought the show, and then Fox announced the the other the, the the competing show, the similar show. They made it a a prerequisite to her closing the deal that she agreed to sue Fox, because ABC didn't want to sue Fox, so they made her sue Fox. And they actually made me, and I was dumb enough to sign it. They made me sign on as one of the other people on the suit against Fox, which meant that I ostensibly barred me from doing anything at Fox. Uh, since now, there's new regime, so hopefully I'll be able to eventually do something at Fox. But um, uh, I was on that suit, and then it gets slightly crazier in that I'm talking with the people and friends with some of the people on the chamber. We're laughing at this insanity because both shows again, it's a game of chicken. Who can get on the air first? We shoot our first show. We wrap. I go over to the other lot to like where I had my office and see if I can put on the TV, you know, the, there's a lot feed sometimes and you can see some of the other shows that are happening on a studio lot because there's what's called a lot feed. And it, along with regular television, you can sometimes see some of the other shows as they're shooting. So I went over to go to my office. Um, and as I pull into the parking lot, I, the security guards on the chamber say, hey, Andrew, come on the set. So I walk on the set. I, I asked to go, I, you know, look around. I, I asked to see the director and end up having a conversation with the director who was a friend of mine. Again, we'd been talking through this. And as I'm walking off the set, they were on a break. As I'm walking off the set, I hear somebody yell out at me, hey, are you Andrew Golder? And I'm like, yeah. And he's, you can't be here. You know, we're, we're involved in a lawsuit, whatever. You guys are suing us. Get off the stage, you know. And I get off the stage and then get to read the next day along with my parents and the rest of Los Angeles that I've been named in a lawsuit because I was caught fleeing the stage, uh, which is just me walking off the stage. Um, and so they countersued and that made the whole thing go away. But it was, that whole thing was insane. Wow. I can tell you a McEnroe story if you want. The, the interesting thing about John was, John was a guy who made his name and became a multimillionaire, aside from the fact he was obviously one of the greatest tennis players of all time. But he, part, part of his brand was that he had no filter, no fuse. He, was, he became famous for having a temper. So he had no reason to temper his temper, so to speak. And it was just funny. He was incred always incredibly kind to me, but I, it was driven home to me one night where we're taping and it's Michael Jordan's last season. Uh, he's with the Wizards and he's playing his last game at Staples. And uh, in between taping, Max there, he's got one of his tennis buddies there and they're hanging out backstage on, a, on downtime. And he says, hey, Andrew, come on, man. Can't we get the Laker game on here? What the fuck, man? Come on, let's watch the Lakers. It's Jordan's last game. And I'm like, okay, John, it's cool, sure. We'll get the Lakers on, you know. And, uh, and then someone tells John that it's also our first night on the air or one of the night, one of the nights our show's on the air. And I walk back into the dressing room an hour and a half later. And he's like, Andrew, what the fuck are we watching the Lakers for? Why are we watching our show? <laughs> and I, and it suddenly I had this and he wasn't being mean, but suddenly this light bulb went off for me. It was like, Oh, this is just how John expresses himself. And he's become incredibly rich expressing himself with, you know, just being kind of temperamental about it. And it was just funny. Like, Oh, I get it. That's, 
That's his thing. That's how he, he he's wired. Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy is just a great, great, great guy. He's just a dude. That's the amazing thing about Jimmy and having watched Jimmy achieve this incredible success, you know, obviously hosting the Oscars and all the, the, the things he's doing, his star just continues to rise and rise and rise. He's to this day and always was just an incredibly normal, approachable guy. He's just the success, none of his success has gone even close to his head. He's just Jimmy. He's just a just a friendly dude, you know? And that's the amazing thing about Jimmy because you see people and, you know, I've, you know, who who take themselves and their success seriously and Jimmy's just remained himself the entire time. Whenever I email him about something, he'll always hit me back even if it's a, you know, a small response, which is fine, you know, he he still just answers everything and he's just the same guy he always was, which is I think the greatest compliment you can give a guy who's had the success he's had. Penn and Teller. Uh, well, they couldn't be more different. I mean, they're kind of like an old married couple now. They've been together for over 40 years. So they've they've got this, this you know, lovely love-hate relationship. You know, they I mean, they, they, they do love each other ultimately very much, I think. Um, but it's a unique dynamic. Um, it, it's been interesting to watch them through this whole process. Penn, I knew... Uh, before we, we hired him to host Identity on NBC, and that's when I became friendly with Penn. And the interesting thing about Teller was, uh, you know, obviously for a guy who never talks, the first we had him on as one of the uh, cast of Identity, and uh, Penn had, I guess, told him, you know, that I was a, a good guy producing the show, whatever. And ironically, I had this crazy experience backstage with Teller was. I, I, I meet him for the first time backstage, and the first words I ever heard Teller say were, oh, it's great to meet you. I've heard so much about you. <laughs> I thought, wait, wait, you, what? What's happening here? You've heard about me. That doesn't make any sense. Like, that was such a strange first thing to hear Teller say. Um, Teller is, they're both together, they're obviously incredibly creative and have come up with this unique brand that is wholly their own and unlike anything we've seen in Magic or probably in entertainment, you know, Teller is one of the greatest living minds in magic. He has uh, 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 just an incredible wealth and depth to his knowledge of magic as an art form. And um, it's really been interesting to watch, you know, because I get to hear them. I'm listening to them during the show and I'm listening to them craft what they're going to say about the act and Teller, amazingly, uh, when we're shooting Fool Us, he'll look at a prop on stage before he's seen a thing. He'll look at a prop and he'll figure out the whole <laughs> thing sometimes just by looking at the prop. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's uncanny, but they're, they are certainly two of a kind, those guys. Amazing. All right. Your proudest moment in show business? Uh, my proudest moment in show business, I don't know, it's, it's probably somewhat somewhat trite, but was probably winning the Emmy for, for Win Ben Stein's money. Um, that for a show that was on cable, um, 
to sort of beat Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune and the Price is Right and those kind of things for this sort of, you know, again, show from nowhere to come up and do that uh, was amazing. And the funny moment about that was, I don't know if you've ever had anything similar, but we're in Madison Square Garden, not in the garden itself, but they've got that other theater, 5,000 seat theater. And we win the Emmy and I, I'm the guy who gets to go up on stage and make the speech. And I'm looking out and I'm giving the speech. And as I look out, Oprah is sitting dead center front row. And I have this crazy sort of moment where my mind begins processing on two tracks at the same time and I'm cognizant of both where I know that I'm on TV making a speech but I'm taking the whole thing in and I like have this moment where I look and I catch eyes with Oprah as I'm talking and I'm not a huge like oh my god it's Oprah person it's just like oh it's Oprah she's a big celebrity and I and I you know the first time in my life that I'd been in a situation like that giving a speech on national TV in front of a lot of people like that. And I'm as I'm giving the speech, I'm thinking to myself, Oprah is watching me, you know, as opposed to me watching Oprah, which is this very weird, very weird moment when I completely screwed up the speech and then had the <laughs> ignominy of being finding myself in the um, TV Guide the next week when they do the um, pans and whatever it is, the the highs and the lows of the week in, in Hollywood. And TV Guide, uh, it was the year that Susan Lucci won her first uh, Emmy after 17 years of not winning. And they write, um, you know, uh, uh, booze or pan, whatever, to the producers of the, of the uh, Emmys, daytime Emmys, for playing off Susan Lucci after and she had they gave her like two and a half minutes but they said you know how dare they play off susan lucci after all that she's been through with the emmys um it's one thing to play off when ben stein's money producer andrew golder in the middle of his um tedious speech which i thought was which i thought was quite something to be to be have a speech be considered tedious after 40 seconds. I went back in time, like, how could it be tedious? It was 40 seconds long. What are you talking about? Um, but that was probably my proudest moment. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Um, I would say there's two, two to that. One is, Look, I, I love doing what I do, as I think you do, because of the people we get to work. I mean, it is work with and the, 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 the friendships you get to work with your friends, you get to be creative. I mean, it is a it's a it's a true joy to be able to do this. And 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 it and because it, it's fun. It's not you know, there's that great saying, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And I really do believe that. And most of the time. I've been lucky enough to do that. So I would say one answer to my biggest disappointment is the few times in my life, there have been a two of them to memory, where I've been on a show that for whatever reason was not fun. And I was working with a couple people who weren't fun to work with. And that then I was working and it wasn't, you know, that was truly work because it wasn't fun. And and how that's changed me is, or what what it, how that's driven me is to want to you know, not put myself, do whatever I can mentally to not find myself in a situation where I'm working with people who it's not fun to work with. And I would say the other disappointment is um, 
that uh, a show that I did that I'm very proud of called Solitary, which we did this very sort of bizarre competition reality series um, uh, that, you know, I sold by I was in a meeting and they and uh, they said, we want to hear a pitch. They were just starting the network, Fox Reality. And they said, we want to hear a pitch that you couldn't sell to any other network. And I thought, oh, I got one of those. And I and I pitched it and a week later they, I mean, they, and it, we were, we made the, signed the deal a week later, which was crazy because it was this game about nine people locked up in isolation and never interacting with each other. But, you know, we did, the disappointment there came in that we did four seasons on the network and then the network went out of business and you know they were going to do multiple more seasons, and it was disappointing that a show that was really fun to do uh, we couldn't continue. Uh, what's interesting is that's kind of driven me to to, to uh, six years later get the rights back to that show finally, and we're going to try and bring it back. So um, those are the two answers to that question. Awesome. Last question: What advice do you have for the young person? growing up in a town where he moves to the next town and the next town and the next town and sort of doesn't have that clear path but has that little germ of inspiration to get into this business and have the kind of career that you have um i think you gotta i think two things i think you've gotta you've gotta keep creating you've gotta do if that's what you want to do you've gotta you know uh uh not just persist it's not just about persistence and it is certainly about persistence but it's about continuing to do it because you love it and 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 continue to churn out material whether it's a screenplay whether it's whatever it is i mean if it's on that side of the camera if it's on the creative side of the camera to keep trying but more than from from a production side from my side of things really um it's to take advantage of the opportunities that you have when you get in the door um, and I'm, I'm shocked, like when I have someone who's an assistant and they don't want, all they want, they're happy just to answer the phones. Um, I think when you get the, when you get in, you want to let people know that you have ambition. You know, you want to, I remember when I was doing, you know, my internship, um, I showed whatever that initiative was. And I remember, you know, getting invited to go into the edit bay. And I was a, I was a, 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 an intern. I wasn't even a paid employee, but the, the, but Robert Gannett, who ran that production company, saw something. He said, Hey, come in the edit bay. Watch this, you know, learn something. And I'm like, hell yeah. You know, and, and you want to have that, you got to have that creative spark and you got to let the people around, you know, that you've got that creative spark. And then to come back to something that you say on the podcast a lot, it really is all about relationships and and reaching out and taking a chance. A guy who on Star Search was just out of college, we hired him to drive the talent around. He was a, a PA, he was driving the talent van. Um, he I somehow knew I was a Laker fan. I don't know, I guess we had a conversation. You know, I try and interact with everybody on the crew in some way and let them know they're appreciated. And he knew I was a sports fan, but you know, this kid invites, he says, you want to go to a Laker game? And he had tickets to a Laker game. He invited me to a Laker game. I said, sure, I'll go to a Laker game with you. And you know, we struck up a friendship and um, I began to, you know, listen to his ideas and he'd pitch me some ideas through the years. And then I hired him on some shows and now he's an executive producer in his own right. 
And it's just because he reached out and took that chance and and then, you know, showed a creative spark. And if if anybody on one of my shows says, hey, I've got an idea, you know, it's always a great, you know, uh, on on fool us. You know, we had uh, a girl who was working as, in production and, you know, I knew she was a writer. I said, write some you want to write, you know, write some intro lines. And she wrote this is a great touching moment for me. You know, she wrote one of the uh, opening monologues for Allison last season and you know we used it and and it was she was like she was a great moment for me you know and I said hey you know we're going to shoot your intro today and she like watched and she broke down crying you know because she was just touched that she had that opportunity and I think when you look as a creative person when you see somebody with a creative spark you 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 want to help it catch fire you want to help those people out so you got to let people know that you've got it in you if you're working on a show and you're lucky enough to get your foot in the door, you know, you don't be a pain in the ass. There's a, there's a tactful way to do it, but you got to let people know that you have something that's there. And if you do that, then I think the people around you will notice and they'll, they'll help you uh, move ahead because ultimately I think you want to see people succeed and grow and, and move ahead. Awesome. Andrew Golder. Barry Katz. Holy shit, you won the game show today. <laughs> it's incredible. Thank you so much. This was fantastic, really inspirational. I really appreciate it, man. Fun. Thanks for being here. I love the show. I'll continue to listen. And uh, I, I love what you do here. It really is, like I said, I'm a fan. Thanks, man. Have you ever done a podcast before? I'm a podcast virgin. My cherry has been broken. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on <laughs> Kitty Cats 2016, posted August 3rd, 2016. It says, wonderful, exclamation point, five stars. Wow, that's nice. It reads, Barry has such a way of getting all his guests out of the comfort zone to make them feel proud about all of their incredible accomplishments. You can tell that every single guest is truly enjoying themselves throughout the interview, and you can just hear the emotion behind the microphone. Hearing their stories is such a joy an inspiration to all. That's really, really kind. Thank you, Kitty Cats 2016. I look forward to meeting a part of my tribe. Congratulations. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com.
as always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.